right there for a moment and, and highlight two groups of people. There are people who are coming to Jesus to find life. And there are people who are coming to Jesus to find fault. People who are coming to find life consist of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors of this day were among the most despised of all people groups. They were considered to be traitors by their fellow Jews. I mean, after all, they were Jews themselves who were working for the, the Roman government as people who went around collecting taxes from their own fellow citizens, even to the point of extorting funds from them. So they were considered the worst kind of thieves and betrayers. And it's these worst of sinners who are interested in what it, ha- what it is that Jesus has to say to them. And if you think about who followed Jesus, I mean, Matthew it was a tax collector. He was considered one of these worst of sinners. Uh, perhaps one of the most familiar of, of characters in the Scriptures is Zacchaeus. And Scripture specifically says of Zacchaeus that he was the worst of sinners. He was a tax collector. But when he met Jesus, he said this to him. He said, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And this is what Jesus said about him. He said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save what was lost. So we have tax collectors and sinners who are coming to Jesus because even though everybody else is rejecting them in this setting and in this culture, Jesus is offering them a message of hope. The second group of people, those who are coming to Jesus to find fault, this would consist of the religious elite, the moralist, the people who think they've got it all together, the Pharisees, those who understand God's word and God's law. And here they are like vultures hovering over Jesus, looking for an opportunity to pounce on him, to attack him and to destroy him. And here they are. What are they saying of Jesus? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They thought they were saying something horrible and condemning. While the reality is they were proclaiming the the glory of the gospel. Jesus welcomes sinners. And they had no clue what it was they're doing at this point. The Apostle Paul was one of these moralists, one of these religious elite who finally had an awakening. And this is what he said about himself. He said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners. He identifies with sinners. He fellowships with sinners. And for that reason, there's hope for every one of us in this room. It's good news, my friend. Come to Jesus. And if these religious people even had a clue as to what all of this was about, they would have had great rejoicing because they would have recognized they themselves were sinners who were in desperate need of a Savior and that lost people matter to God, but instead we find them finding fault. So why would they be so condemning? Why were they so hard, hard on, on Jesus? Well, they've done such a good job at defining those things that are clean and those things that are unclean 
that they, they couldn't associate with certain people. They just weren't, they were, they were off the radar. They, they, why would they want to associate with them? They didn't fit into their social group at all. And, but Jesus, he doesn't go around trying to figure out who he needs to stay away from. He goes around accepting everybody and embracing everybody. He associates with even the worst of sinners. So just a couple of applications right away here. And this is really the driving application of this whole text today because it's just an amazing text. Number one, have you come to Christ for life? Okay, or are you still on the side where you're finding fault? And if you're on the side where you're finding fault, you're probably some moralist who thinks you're just good enough. Okay, come to Christ for life. Okay, secondly, what keeps us from associating with people who so desperately need Christ. And, and we do this in church. I mean, it seems like, you know, we kind of define who we'll hang with and who we won't. But we need to recognize Jesus, what a friend to sinners, okay? Well, now Jesus is going to go into three parables that really are aimed at confronting these religious elite, these moralists, these Pharisees and teachers of the law. He's got three stories to support what he's doing, but he's, he wants them to understand what the heart of their heavenly father is. So story number one, parable number one. So Jesus tells this parable, verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. <clears throat> Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, who's righteous anyway? Okay, So this is about the one that's having revelation that he's unrighteous and desperately needs a Savior. Okay, There's only one thing that we're sure about that will make those angels sing and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. That's when the angels rejoice. Yeah! yeah that's what we've got to remember here. So lost people matter to God. I really enjoy listening to, to Chuck Smith pastor of Calvary Church, Costa Mesa. You may know who he is. Uh, that church is considered to have been the epicenter of the Jesus movement of the 1960s. There were times when Pastor Chuck was baptizing thousands of people at, at a time. But he was getting messages from the Christian Church of America across this nation with one question, when are those people going to get their hair cut? <clears throat> well, that doesn't matter. In God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, the only thing that matters is that sinners are coming home. And yet we tend to have this critical eye. Verse 8. <clears throat> Story number 2. Or suppose a woman <clears throat> has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin in the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So notice the natural response in the kingdom of God to a sinner coming home to their creator. It's party time. It's time 
to celebrate. It's not some sort of assessment as to what kind of clothes they wear or what their hair looks like. It's not a long list of prejudices or biases or personal convictions that someone is trying to pose, uh, impose on another person. Bottom line, it's the message that lost people matter to God. He's a seeking and he's a finding God. He's the hound of heaven. So we tend to think of him as being the God who forgives, who's great in mercy, but we need to also understand that he seeks us out until he finds us. Yeah. I mean, do you remember the day that the Lord found you? You remember that time in your life when there was a turning point and the Lord found you. Well, you need to know the hunt didn't end that day. He's still out. He's still seeking those who are to be found and He wants you involved in that mission with Him. Because lost people matter to God. It's the heart of Jesus. Verse 11. Story number 3. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share. And right there you can underline the word, give me, give me, give me. Mine, 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 mine. Huh? Yeah, very dangerous place to be. This is the attitude of this younger son at this point. Give me, give me, give me. Give me my share of the estate. So this father divided his property between them. And uh, so just a couple of things to point out here. Father here represents God in Jesus' parable. This younger son represents these tax collectors and these sinners who are coming to Jesus. You got that? The father represents God. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners who are coming to Jesus. Under Old Testament law, if there were two sons in a family and the father were dividing up his estate, the older son would get two-thirds, the younger son would get one-third, so it's one-third of the father's estate. It would have been okay if the father had decided at any point in his life that now is the time that I wish to divide up my estate. But it was totally inappropriate for any son to come to a father while his parents are still living and say, I want my share of the estate right now. Okay? In fact, it would be on the level of saying to his father, I hate you and I wish you were dead. And what it boils down to is the statement that you heard me say a moment ago that's just been resounding in my brain continually this past week. And that's this. It's about this son caring a great deal about the father's stuff, but not caring a great deal about the father himself. I want your stuff. I just don't want a relationship with you. And so there's a huge application that we all need to consider right there, and that is, do we really want the father, or do we just want his stuff? Because I think oftentimes that's what church is about, is how do we get more stuff out of the Father? How do we get you know, in an arm wrestling match with Him so we win more? But the fascinating thing is like Matthew 6.33, where it says, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. So that's about seeking God first. And then it says, All these things will be added to you. It's an understanding that it's only out of a proper relationship with God that God is able to bless us. So it's a huge, huge deal for me this week. You know, I think I've expressed to you in recent weeks that I'm evaluating what does it mean for Christ to be my first love? What does it mean to love Him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And then this week I get this, this word, do I want Him really or do I just want His stuff? 
And so I would just challenge you to consider that thought as, as one worth spending some time on. But typically, in this situation, with a son wishing his father were dead and asking him for his stuff before the father is dead, this would have been cause to the, for the father to say, you're out of here. You're no longer a part of this family. Why don't you just leave? But not this father. I mean, it would have been okay for him to do that. You know? You just get lost. You don't get anything. You lose. You know? Gong. Wrong. But not this father. This father goes ahead and gives the son exactly what it is that this son wants. The Greek word that's used here for this word property is a great word. It's the word bios. And you know that word because it's the word from which we get biography and, and biology. Bios. It means life. It means, Father, give me my share of your life. Give me my share of your livelihood. Give me my share of that which you use not only to sustain yourself, but that which you use to sustain those that you care so deeply about. The younger son is literally saying to his father, Father, tear your life apart so that I can have what I want. It's such an extreme story at this point that the people who are listening, these Pharisees and teachers of the law are saying, no way, that's impossible, that's not going to happen. No reasonable father would ever divide up his livelihood for such a foolish son, especially a son who demonstrates such hatred to his father. But the father gives it to him anyway. Father realizes that the only way he has a chance of winning his son is by giving his son exactly what he wants. Giving his son exactly what he wants. If you love something, you let it go. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was yours in the first place. Somebody else has said this, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he would like. And it's only in doing life apart from this father that the son reaches that place where he has the capacity of bumping his head against the wall and waking up. And at that point, realizing how desperately he really needs his father. I've recently heard that, that you can talk to a wise man and a wise man will hear you, he'll receive from you. You can, you can confront a wise man and if, if you mean well in confronting the wise man, the wise man will receive from you exactly what it is you have for him. But you can't talk to a fool. You can't confront a fool because if you try to talk to a fool or confront a fool, it's just going to escalate to this big argument and it's not going to get you anywhere because a fool needs to bump his head to have an awakening. And the amazing thing here is that we've all been fools. <laughs> and there's hope for the fool because if at last we come to the place where we have an awakening, then everything turns. It never matters where we are in the race. The only thing that matters is that we finish well. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son 
got together all he had and set off for a distant country. Now, that's not just talking about a far-off place. It's also talking about a far-off heart. Okay? Yeah, set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth on wild living. The parable of the prodigal son. Right? Typically we hear that and we think of the parable of the wayward son and that's how we define it. But perhaps the better definition is this. Recklessly extravagant. The recklessly extravagant son. It's to be on a mission to spend everything that you have without regard for the consequences. To spend and spend and spend until it's all gone. (laughs) And when you define prodigal that way, you have to say, now hold on a minute. If this son was prodigal, then don't we have to call the father prodigal as well? Because the father becomes recklessly extravagant in this parable at extending grace and forgiveness and mercy to his son. We have a recklessly extravagant heavenly father. It's the father who will eventually have that opportunity to give his son the greatest gift of all in welcoming him back into a relationship. Verse 14. So after this recklessly extravagant younger brother spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country And he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to citizens of that country. This would be a Gentile, non-Jewish country, unclean people. So this guy sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Uh Uh-oh, unclean animals in a Jewish culture. This boy longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Wow. So Jesus gives the story to these Jewish teachers and leaders and they're probably on the verge of of wanting to puke. I mean, not only is the son disregarding his father and demonstrating hate toward his father, he's working for non-Jews, he's feeding their pigs and they had a statement back then that said, cursed is the man who feeds the pigs. You know, they would have thought there's no way, this is impossible, this job is forbidden of Jews. Uh, pigs considered to be so unclean, but not only is this guy working with these pigs, this younger son is envying pigs. Seventeen. When he came to his senses. Oh. An awakening. <laughs> Re-emphasizing. You can teach a wise man and he'll hear you. You can't teach a fool. He won't hear from you. He's got to crash into something. He's got to smack his head. We've all been fools. Hopefully we've smacked our heads and we've had an awakening because our story ends well when we come to this point when he came to his senses. He said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice what the two words, give me, have been replaced with. Make me. Yeah. And that's the proper place of coming into relationship with our Heavenly Father. I no longer want what I want, Father. I want what you want. Make me like one of your hired 
men. So notice at this point, this younger son isn't talking to his father. He's just rehearsing what he hopes that he'll have the opportunity to tell his father once he actually gets to see his father again. Okay? He's not going to get the opportunity to say all this. So we go on. Verse 20. So he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. All this younger son had to do was reach this point of turning around, and the father would see him, have compassion on him, and run the distance to the son. The, father did, the son didn't have to go very far. He just had to come to the place of turning, and that's, the father took it from there. That's the way it works with our Heavenly Father. He, at the point of our turning, as though he's been looking for us night and day, anticipating our turning, he sees us, he has compassion for us, and he comes running toward us to receive us just as we are. Well, in this culture, there's no way that father would have run toward his son. That has to be what these Pharisees and teachers of the law are thinking. I mean, they wore these tight robes. And for a father to run, he would have to gird his loins. You remember that a few weeks ago? He'd have to roll up his robe. He'd have to tuck it in. And he would expose his hips. That would have been unheard of. But not this recklessly extravagant father. He doesn't care. It's going to take whatever measure it takes. He's going the distance for this son. Verse 21. The son said to him, and here's his rehearsed lines, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's as far as he gets. He never gets to finish the rest of this stuff. No way. It didn't matter because the only thing that mattered at this point was the fact that this son is coming home. And everything that he, else that he was going to say is just an attempt on his part to try to fix things himself. To try to show, hey, I'm not that bad of a son after all. You know, uh, here's what I'll do. Let's, let's, let's work a deal. But you don't work a deal with your heavenly father. He calls the shots. And if he wants to restore you as a son, a son you shall be. He doesn't restore us to slavery. He restores us to sonship. No bargaining here on the table with God. Just turn and let him take it from there. Verse 22. <clears throat> but the father said to his servants, and this would represent attending angels, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. This is a royal robe, right? Put a ring on his finger. This is the family signet ring. This is the father's power of, 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 power of attorney. Okay? If you were sending a document to somebody and you wanted it to be official and sealed, you'd melt wax on it and take your ring and stamp that piece of wax saying, this is my signature. And by giving this son his signet ring, he's giving him the privilege of representing the father in all business dealings. All right? So he gives him the signet ring. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves have never been given shoes. Okay, the old Negro spirituals used to say, I got his shoes, you got his shoes. When, we get, when I get to heaven, going to put on my shoes. You know, you don't give slaves shoes. That way they can't run very far. But this son is going to be a son. Sons get shoes. Slaves don't. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. When sinners come home, there's a party thrown on their behalf. The prodigal God in action. Recklessly extravagant in extending mercy to anyone who will receive it. The royal robe, the signet ring, sandals on your feet, the most expensive meal you can imagine. But... Do you remember who he's talking to? He's talking to the moralists. He's talking to the legalists. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the teachers of the law who said about Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They thought they were saying something terrible about Jesus, but what they didn't realize was that they were proclaiming the glory of the gospel. Jesus associates with people. Jesus associates with people that religious people try to avoid. That's who Jesus is. And God in heaven wants us to understand a few things. Hear these now. His reckless, extravagant grace covers any sin that you have ever committed. His recklessly extravagant grace doesn't depend on your sense of worthiness, but in the reality of your unworthiness. That His recklessly extravagant grace... simply calls to all who will hear, come home. That His recklessly extravagant grace will cause Him to run the distance to you even though you are still a long way off. And this kid still had pig residue on him. He wasn't cleaned up yet. He won't be cleaned up until he gets home. The father is saying what he wants done for his son, but this father is falling all over his son before he even has a bath, because he's recklessly extravagant in his great love. And that's his attitude toward you. Verse 25. Meanwhile, that's an important meanwhile. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. The oldest son represents the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the moralists, the mutterers. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So you can see right here that the religious elite and the moralists cannot share in the joy of salvation because they do not understand the heart of God. They can't rejoice that Jesus associates with sinners. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So notice the father makes the same effort with the older brother he made with the younger brother. He went out and pleaded with him. But this older brother answered, his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And right there is the spirit of the religious. They don't serve God out of joy and out of, out of freedom and out of liberty. They serve God out of bondage. 
Okay? They want to stand before God and brag about all their Sunday school merit pins and all the wonderful things that they've done and all the wonderful things that they are. All these years, I have slaved for you and never disobeyed your orders, never disobeyed your law, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours... That's the way it works in my house. My daughters do something wonderful, they're my daughters. If they do something less than wonderful, they're your daughters. <laughs> right? This older brother couldn't bring himself to the place of saying, my brother. He said, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This is why Jesus gave us these three parables. He wants us to understand the heart of religious people who are so caught up in their laws that they forget the heart of God. In each of these parables, we find that there's something lost. We find that there's something found. We find that when the lost thing is found, that there's great rejoicing in heaven. There's great rejoicing on the part of the one who's lost that thing. But this is the only parable where Jesus brings home to those who are listening exactly what He wants them to understand. That that Pharisees have this attitude that says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them and thinks that they're saying something that's totally demeaning of Jesus. Look how awful He is when in reality they're declaring the glory of the Gospel. And the application here is Jesus will receive you. And it puts us back on us again. What is our attitude toward those who don't know the faith? Who don't know our Savior? And the big tragedy in this story is that this eldest son, who was convinced that he was doing all the right things, serving his father so diligently, never even came in to the feast. And if the feast represents the Lamb's Supper, On the great day of Jesus' return, he missed the feast. Just like his younger brother, he wanted the father's stuff. He just didn't want the father. And Jesus, again, in this parable, doesn't tell us the rest of the story. I mean, did this older brother have an awakening? Did he turn around? Did he come to understand the father's heart? Did he eventually come in and enjoy the feast? Or was he so caught up in his personal goodness that he missed out on all the wonderful blessings that his father had prepared for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Is that enough? (laughs) And everything I have is yours, the result of a proper relationship with the father. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. There have been a lot of great sermons preached on the parable of the prodigal son. Typically, they focus on this son, the younger son's leaving home and his rebellion. But but really, do we see the primary purpose of the parable? That Jesus is confronting these religious people who have no category for the kind of people that Jesus associates with. Okay, In the first two parables, we see that God cares about lost things. That's important. But we have to understand the heart of 
of the Father, that He welcomes sinners to the point that every church, not just this church, but every church needs to have a sign out front that says, only sinners welcome. Jesus eats with sinners. He loves it when people have a turnaround and come home. And I think for too long, the church, and my introduction to church, church has been guilty of moralism. Imposing our convictions and our values on everybody else, go around finding fault with a society that's only operating out of what they understand. What do they understand? They understand flesh. What does flesh say? It says, feed me. I want. Give me. Give me. Give me. And we look at the nation and we say the world is is falling on its face because we've lost God. It's not the world that's lost God. It's the church that's lost God. And when the church loses God, then everything else is in trouble. So it's up to us, my friends, to understand the heart of God that hears about lost people, but we can't go around as God police telling people and wondering, why do they put those marks on them? Why do they put those holes in themselves? Why do they cut themselves? Why do they do this and do this? Expecting them to live up to our values without even knowing our Savior. And you know what that does? It undermines the power of the Gospel. Because when Christ comes into a life, the Spirit infuses that life so that the person understands now the heart of God, so that the heart of God comes alive in that person so that they can live out everything that God desires them to be. Not what the church desires them to be, but what God desires them to be. Because we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So who are we today? Well, some of us are younger brothers. (laughs) We want our stuff. And we just want to distance ourselves from the Father. Okay, And there's nobody going to talk us into anything. We've got to bump our heads and crash and come to an awakening, this place where we realize how desperately we need our Heavenly Father. But most of us have probably tried really hard all of our lives to be older brothers. I mean, we want to do everything that it takes to fit into this thing we call the body of Christ, to look just right, to act just right, to the point that we've become critical of those who don't live up to our standards. And God wants us to hear today. Jesus, what a friend to sinners. He rejoices more over one lost thing being found than 99 that go around thinking or patting themselves on the back for exactly how righteous they believe they are. And to both groups, the Father says the same thing. He says, come home. Come home. Just come home. Yeah. That's the Word of God. I just want to give you a moment to consider what it is that God wants you to know today and and, uh, what He would want to do in your life in accordance, what His Spirit would like to do, what you need to do And just take that time between you and the Lord. And I'll do the same.